Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Zach Cast. I'm Patrick here with my buddy Chad. Patrick, how you doing? I am very good. Uh, locked up for another week of COVID, you know. So just just hanging out at the house office. Kids and, are back in school uh, though, yeah. Yeah, the kids are back in school, so it's a little bit more productive this week than it is otherwise. But yeah, kids are back in school. Things are getting back to a little bit of normal. Uh, I'd say the new normal, but uh, things are things are looking looking good right now. How are things so, going with you? Uh, pretty good. I, I actually ran to Target yesterday morning, and uh, it was like right before all of the other stores in that center started to open, and the line to get into the Ross Dress for Less, I swear there were like 50 people just like waiting outside. It looked like an iPhone <laughs> release. It was crazy. Well, I would prefer if my wife may do a little bit more shopping at the discount retailers uh, rather than the brown box retailer that comes to my house five times a day. So, you know, it'd be a little cheaper for me. But uh, yeah, I mean, look, I think everybody's trying to get a new sense of normality at this point and, you know, get out there. Like we're trying to play baseball with our kids and, uh, you know, really, really try to get our kids back into normal routine of life because it's just been such a such a difference of of routine for us as a family. So, you know, looking forward to it. So talking about like changes to routines, um, one thing we talked about last time is uh, how many people are using like the delivery services like Instacart, DoorDash, Grubhub uh, during the quarantines. And sort of as a result, kind of like, you know, how we, we started a shutdown and everyone started using Zoom. And then all these news stories came out about how Zoom is uh, problematic, right? Well, the same thing has has happened uh, about these these service apps, um, DoorDash, Grubhub, things like that. Um, but a lot of these news articles are kind of crazy. These businesses, you're probably quite aware, Patrick, are basically like terrible in terms of their actual business models. Um, I I want to say that DoorDash last year they lost four hundred and fifty million dollars on like nine hundred million in revenue. It's insane. Yeah, they are they are bootstrapping nothing. And I mean it's yeah, it's crazy. And it's not just that they lose a bunch of money. It's like they, they don't really like there are basically no real winners in the food delivery gig economy. You got DoorDash, you got Grubhub, you got Uber Eats, they're all losing a ton of money. They're all uh problematic for the restaurants that are participating. And, uh, and I mean, it's nice not to have to go pick up, uh, food at every single restaurant during this time. But I mean, truthfully, usually the food's kind of cold. The drivers don't have equipment to keep the food warm, especially if you get like pizzas or things like that, where you, you know, you have specialty equipment to keep those warm and the actual pizza restaurants where they have their in-house delivery, you know, they have all that equipment, but usually you just get your DoorDash in a plastic sack and it's cold by the time it gets to your house. Especially like me, I live further further out, you know, from all of the civilization. So by the time it gets to me, it's all cold. Um, but there are a lot of things that are going on with this. Not just that they're losing a bunch of money. There's also some really like shady tactics that are that they're doing. Like for example, um, Grubhub. So when you sign up for Grubhub, first of all, part of the value proposition for these businesses is that they will service new customers to these restaurants, and uh, so part of what these restaurants are paying for is theoretically new customers. There's a problem though, because people like Grubhub, whenever you sign a restaurant, they will actually like create a, uh, a local phone number that just routes to their centralized order bank. 
But then, you know, they have all this technological savvy. They have these huge ad budgets. They basically manipulate and like hijack your search results. So they get their phone number placed into your Google listings or to your Yelp listings. So even if you're Googling for a specific restaurant and you find the phone number on the search results and you call it, you're not actually calling the restaurant, you're calling Grubhub. And Grubhub is then taking a cut of that order, even though it's not, uh, you know, it's not actually sourced by Grubhub. And in some cases, you've got the way that they had that whole setup. I mean, you have coffee shops that are paying like six bucks for uh, a Grubhub order that actually came in because the person Googled for the business's phone number. It's it's really shady. I, I don't understand necessarily why there has to be uh, basically no winners. Like wh- why there can't be a symbiotic relationship between these services. But the bigger problem with them is that they don't they don't really operate in a normal market environment. Have we ever talked about VC on this podcast, Patrick? I know we've talked about think, it a lot. Yeah, correct. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I don't I don't think we have. And uh, it's this is a really good topic to talk about VC. Uh, and and go ahead. I mean, jump. I'm going to let you keep going and jump into this because I think you're you're doing a good job explaining it. Okay. So venture capital is one option that a business has to sort of uh, expedite its growth, right? There's a lot of different ways that you can start a business. We bootstrapped. We basically just built our our company in our spare time. You know, we we each put in like 200 bucks when we started, right? And it's just kind of grown from there. Mm-hmm. You could also just take on investors, like silent partners, people who are willing to make a long play. Um, or if you want to grow really quickly, you could take venture capital. So venture capital is based on um, basically making lots of bets on lots of companies that have the potential for exponential growth. And you hope some of them pay off and you can quickly exit, maybe with an IPO, um, and you can make a large return on in your investment. But what this ends up doing is really distorting sort of the business model for the underlying business because they're not so much concerned about profits. I mean, you look at these businesses, these, these tech companies in particular, that get VC funding, and none of them make money because they're not trying to make money right now. They'll figure out that whole profit thing later, that whole sustainable business model later. All they're trying to do right now is just grow as quickly as possible. Just show that they have user growth, that they have engagement, that they have uh, you know, market share increases. And if you can show that exponential growth, then you can get other people to invest. And then the initial VC people can get out and make their profit, move on to something else. And then everyone else kind of have to figure the rest of it out later. Um, so that's how you get DoorDashes losing half a, half a billion dollars on a billion dollars of revenue, spending nearly one and a half billion dollars to make a billion. It's insane. Mm-hmm. But it also leads to some really weird uh, business decisions because it, when you understand that the normal incentives of a business, which are to make more than you spend and, uh, you know, and in that way achieve financial sustainability, um, then it's, it's a, lot easier to, a lot more easy to understand why some of these decisions take place. But have you, have you heard of the story of the pizza arbitrage? Yes, I have, where the guy literally found out that uh, in order to um, that, that Grubhub was selling his pizza for $5 less, right? Then he was actually charging for it? Yeah, okay. So, so it was DoorDash. And, a DoorDash, uh, okay. okay. It, it's not clear if this was just a, like a web scraping error, like they scraped his website incorrectly, or if they were just using this 
as a loss leader. But this this particular pizzeria was not a DoorDash participant. They were they did not use DoorDash. They didn't want to have delivery. They didn't want to compete with Domino's or Pizza Hut. They 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 preferred their their dine-in experience. So they did not use uh, DoorDash. Well, DoorDash just decided to go ahead and list them anyway. And they were charging 16 bucks for a pizza that the restaurant was charging $24 for. And uh, so they, the restaurant found this out because they were getting calls from customers complaining about how their pizza was cold and, you know, it was the wrong order and all this stuff. And they didn't have delivery. So they were, you know, they didn't have any idea what was happening. And they finally figured out that DoorDash was basically um, kind of going around them. Probably trying to demonstrate that DoorDash could source new business for them. Um, so uh, whether that's true, you know, is kind of up for debate. But at the end of the day, DoorDash was charging sixteen dollars for a pizza that the restaurant was charging twenty four dollars for. So they actually they tried to use this as an opportunity for arbitrage, and the restaurant would actually uh, just as a test, they would try to they would order like ten pizzas. They would pay DoorDash sixteen bucks a pizza. DoorDash would then pay them $24 a pizza. So there's like, there's this margin here. Now, of course, um, when you're actually making the pizzas, you're the one ordering and making that margin is extremely, I think it was like 50 cents a pizza. So Mm -hmm. the second time they did this, they just put raw dough in the, in the box (laughs) because at that point, uh, the dough was basically zero cost to them at that scale. Mm -hmm. So so the second round, they order these 10 pizzas and they give them boxes with dough. And instead of making 50 cents a pizza, they're making like seven bucks a pizza. Right? But <laughs> at the end of the day, the, the question is like, why do these businesses even exist if they're not making money and they're not headed towards profitability? Um, I mean, you look at Uber. Uber has been around for what, 10 years and so they've never made a profit. Their most profitable division is Uber Eats, which loses like half a billion dollars a quarter, some absurd amount of money a year. Well, and, and, and I think it's, it is important to say though, there have been, it's hard to say successful. Uh, and, and I'm not a fan of VC. I want to be very clear. We've made some decisions with Zach that, you know, we wanted to bootstrap it, do it the right way, make money, make sure that Chad and I could afford our mortgage payments, those type of things. But at the end of the day, there are some companies that are out there that have successfully, um, you know, gone this route. I mean, you know, the, one of the biggest ones, Chad, would be Amazon, correct? But ironically, Amazon didn't really turn a profit through like what people consider Amazon to be today, which is the, I go to Amazon, I buy something, it comes to my door. Amazon made a profit because of Amazon Web Services, their, their major hosting services site. That's when they started well, to make that, a profit. Yeah, part of that's because Bezos just kept pouring money into it to build up the infrastructure so that they could do the two-day mm-hmm. delivery or the, you know, the prime now, the same day, two hour delivery, basically across the whole country, really across the whole world. But isn't that the so, same thing that DoorDash and Grubhub are doing at this point? Aren't, it, and, and aren't they trying to basically monopolize the delivery business by, by any means necessary, by just pouring cash at it? And once they have that monopoly, they'll then cut what they, they pay drivers take a bigger cut from the restaurants and get themselves to profitability. Isn't that ultimately what they're, what they're trying to do? Yeah. I don't know that. I think there's a difference in scale because Amazon was, there was always a path to profitability while they were growing. You could see that if they, 
if they were to basically just kind of stop with the infrastructure, that they would be profitable. Whereas your DoorDashes, your Grubhubs, if they were to stop losing money on every transaction, they're still not close enough to profitable. And and they're already kind of bilking. <laughs> they're already bilking the restaurants. So in a low margin industry, it's kind of tough to see how they're going to start charging the restaurants even more um, without like just massively making them increase prices. Part of the problem with this whole system, though, is I'm not going to get partisan, but it's it's tough to to not be somewhat political. Is this is this is viewed as like a, a failure of capitalism? But the what you need in capitalism, and really in any market economy, is you need price signals to determine resource allocation. And there are no price signals in the market for uh, you know service. Uh, or gig economy delivery. There's no market, uh, there's no price signal because you have this subsidy from venture capital and it distorts so much the actual price that's being paid. There's no reason why a uh, a third-party delivery service couldn't exist that doesn't cause the restaurants to uh, to lose all of their tiny margins and still allows for efficient delivery uh, to the home and add value to the transaction. But in order for that to happen, the consumer actually has to bear the price. And right now they're not. I mean, what do you pay? Like $4 for delivery? And then maybe you tip? And then basically your tip is the only thing that the driver makes? I think as, a, as consumers, we've gotten used to this idea of, uh, of subsidized prices, especially with things like Facebook and Google and Twitter. And all of these services are free especially up front before there's ads. They're free because of venture capital is, is allowing these businesses to scale and grow and build the network effects and build the market share without you having to pay for it. Mm. But uh, because the consumers aren't the ones that are actually bearing the true added value cost that allows the businesses to make uh, strategic and efficient resource allocation decisions, you just end up with this huge mess. I feel like this the the biggest problem with these types of businesses is that there is a lack of price signaling. And I've been trying I've been thinking about this and as it relates to to how cities operate, particularly from an economic development standpoint. And I mean this is not this is not like a novel idea, um, but there's a there's a big similarity between that type of business model, the the exponential growth VC subsidize the the consumer side model and what we do in economic development um, in terms of I mean if you think about economic development like, there are lots of aspects to it you know you you want to make it easy for a business to get started in your city so maybe you try to streamline the development process uh, you try to limit the regulations of how they can operate how they can uh, how they can build their actual buildings, all those kinds of things. But at the end of the day, economic development is largely about what is it going to take us? How much are we going to have to give away to get that business to come to my city? Right? Correct. Yeah. It's, it's, a math, it's a math problem. It's an equation. And a lot of times, uh, I, I think there's a truism that we, we probably don't recognize or admit frequently enough in city government, which is that there's no amount of subsidy that can turn an unsustainable business into a sustainable 
business. If a, if a, if a retailer is going to come to your city or if they're thinking about coming to your city, but it's not going to be sustainable, there's no amount of money you can give them that's going to turn that into a profitable business long-term. And we dealt with this a lot, you know, when we were in the field, um, we had Correct, all yeah. kinds of requests for uh, incentives and, and sales tax rebates. And of course, we didn't have property tax in the city that we worked in together. But, you know, when you look at those developments and you try to score them as a city manager, um, you, you have to, there has to be a winner on both sides, right? The business Correct. needs my, to my, my favorite to city also has to be financially sustainable. After the deal is done. Yeah. My, my favorite type of economic development deals, and, and I'm being sarcastic, is when a developer walks up to you and asks, you know, can I get an incentive for this, this new restaurant that I'm putting in? And then you ask them, well, what's the restaurant? And they basically tell you the name of the restaurant and they're relocating a restaurant from, an, from your city in their development. And they want you to incentivize money that you've already got. Or they're bringing in a user that is a direct competitor to another existing user that you have and watching in cities do those incentive packages. So you're, you're basically incentivizing something new that is a direct competitor to something you already have. And most cities don't even take that math into account what that existing sales tax dollar is from that existing user. A prime example is Michael's and, and Hobby Lobby. I've seen that a couple of times. You've got an existing Michael store and then you've got a Hobby Lobby that comes in and you incentivize a Hobby Lobby. Um, I've seen that happen in two or three cities. Uh, yeah, not taking and, into account the cannibalization of, of what you're going to be losing at the other store. Correct. And, you know, uh, I, I think, yeah, I, I think sometimes economic development does start to act like VC capital, right? We just need to, we just need to get the scale on the ground and it's going to be there. And that's extremely dangerous because at some point you've got to provide services to that user and you have to be able to justify the amount of services that you have to provide with some type of revenue source. And a lot of cities are just, um, you know, a lot of communities, what happens in ED when you don't have the finance department involved specifically, when you don't have a, a good, fair uh, development scoring process that includes multiple different parties and not just the economic development department, um, you know, you, you tend to lean towards getting a deal done rather than making a good deal. So I, I love what you said earlier about the uh, the developments where you you have an existing user that you you may or may not have incentivized, but particularly when you did incentivize the original development, and now that incentive has run out, and they want to relocate and they want a new incentive. Yes. <laughs> so, like, as yeah. soon as the city is going to start making money on it, they're gonna they're gonna start back at square one. And this, I think, this really ties into the. Uh, uh, what does Strong Towns call it? The the growth Ponzi scheme. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So like, we need new development to basically pay for the stuff that we already have, and because we give away so much to get that new development, we we need even more. So you have this need for exponential growth, right? It's it's very much like like venture capital, and what it does is it creates an environment where there's no there's no functioning marketplace. There's no, there's no valid price signals. Um, there's no concern about financial stability in the, in the, sh in the near term. Uh, and you just kind of hope that it works out with volume. So like you're literally, you're losing money on each transaction and you try to make it up in volume. Well, it, 
I mean, that happens. And then you see in, in the development world, I mean, not just talking about the cities, but you look at a development world and everybody jumps off the same cliff together. So if one major brand or flagship jumps off a cliff and says, well, we're going to go locate in this market, whether they're actually profitable or not in that market, you may have four or five other brands that co-locate at the same time, right? And then after you have four or five brands that jump on the ground and they're all still not you know, high-performing stores, you may have another five or six that do that. So that's why a lot of times you see these new power center developments where you have um, you know, you had all these tenants go in, you had a hundred percent, you know, 90 to hundred percent occupancy. It gets sold off to a real estate investment trust. The developers are super happy. The city's happy up until you start to see the decline at years five, six, and seven, as the first round of leases have their out options. And so then you start to see the decline in these centers. And so the out parcel little retail centers that are, that are out there from, from your like junior anchors, those out parcel centers are the first ones to see it. And you start to see the empty out parcels. And then you start to see the empty pad users, right? And then eventually what we're seeing now in today's market after COVID, you're going to see the empty JCPenney store and you're going to see the empty eventual Belks and Bells and those players. So, you know, that Ponzi scheme that is, is happening in the development side on the city side is, is really going to come back now where you you've artificially inflated through development incentives and uh, you know TERS districts and PIDs and those type of things, some of that is is too artificial. I'm not saying they're not used. Chad and I use them aggressively when we worked in city government. That you know we just we took a more incremental approach to it. Um, and at the end of the day, what was most important is that our performa from the city perspective was that we made money, that the city made money on this development. After taking into account the cost of infrastructure, after taking into account the cost of the incentives, we were still going to be positive. Uh, now it helped that you know we had city council members that were bank presidents, and they tend to like performers. But the the reality of the situation is is that there are a lot of cities out there that are going to have some empty out parcels, and I think that's now going to filter in and kind of infect the actual junior anchor spots. And we're going to start to see that over the next couple of months. Is there is it possible that we are thinking about economic development, like we're focusing on the wrong things. Like, in other words, we're trying to make up for the fact that a development just straight up on its own uh, may not be financially viable, right? The performa. Performa doesn't work because maybe the property's too expensive or the, the demographics aren't quite right. But if you give me a little bit of, uh, like, reduce my costs a little bit, we can make it work. But it almost always revolves around how much money can is the city giving back to the development? Mm -hmm. Is there a different way? And I don't have an answer to this, but is there a different way way where economic development is not treated so much as as what does it take to what do we have to give up to bring something? But instead, how can we build a community that actually offers a sustainable development environment without incentives? Or perhaps with with a smaller incentive, you know, package. I think it's entirely possible, but I think that conversation starts uh, first at the political level. Uh, I think your politicians have to get away from immediate gratification in order to have that conversation seriously. I mean, I, I just I, you have to start at that point. You can't. You, we don't get there from a city perspective because you know the managers and the economic development directors, in order to keep their jobs, a lot of times 
are being told by their city council members, you know, or their commissioners that, you know, we need it now. It, there's a, there's a keeping up with the Joneses mentality that happens. It's in, an arms race. It's an arms race in city government. And, um, I think we have to have a brave few who stand up and say, you know, Hey, we don't have to do that. Or we have to better educate our politicians that they're not actually making money on those deals. And sometimes saying no is, is better than saying yes. Um, so it, it's just, it's really tough. I mean, and, and look, I, I, you know, Chad, you can put a dollar on the, in, in the jar when I say this, but I say this from the standpoint of my dad's a developer. I grew up in development. My family is dependent on development. Um, and you know, it is, it is a different mentality from the development side than it is from the city side. But I'm just saying generally developers are going to push because capitalism tells them to push to make their deal as profitable as possible. And if that can get them an injection of additional city funds, I, I think it would be tremendous. And I think if a region would learn with specific types of development, because there are, you know, it's, it's, it's super broad and it's, it's hard to, I, I don't want to paint it with just one big brush uh, because I think industrial manufacturing, employment, um, corporate relocations, things like that, that's a whole different ball of wax. Uh, and, and it's, it's something just, it, it really has its own uh, math equation separate from like retail and power center development. Um, and, and so I, I want to be very careful that I'm not, I'm not trying to paint everything at the same time, but it would be nice to see like regionally if some cities would step up and say, you know what, we're going to be more conservative and a lot tighter in incentivizing retail. And I would go even further to say where we should be doing it is retail that may not be there by the time the incentive runs out, right? In, in soft goods retail, things that are sold on Amazon, things that have gone online. I mean, I, I, I have this funny conversation with my wife about once a month where she talks about all of the, and I've talked about my wife and shopping twice on the same podcast, but um, where she talks about all of her favorite stores that have gone out of business that month. Right. Um, and I just, I think at the end of the day, we've got to be smarter as cities and it's hard to do that individually. We actually have to do that a little bit more corporately uh, and, and maybe through like associations and organizations, we have to have those conversations and, and push that education uh, point of view. Uh, to cast the strong towns movement has done that. Don't get me wrong, but there are still, there are still some political things with the strong towns movement that folks are not going to agree with. The one thing I will say though, is that we've got to be a little bit more incremental in our approach. I mean, I, I would a hundred percent agree with that. We need to be smarter in the overall equation of where we put our city funds and where we don't put our city funds. Um, and we've got to get away from from the glory side of development. It's really great to get the glory. Don't get me wrong. My name's been in the paper. I've cut the ribbons. I understand what it feels like. But ultimately, if you're cutting a ribbon on something that's going to be detrimental to the finances of your city ten years down the road, why? Let's just let's just be a little better and a little smarter at what we're doing. So you mentioned earlier um, the political aspect of this, right? You said we need to. Uh, to get the politicians on board with changing the way that we do this. This is a really stupid question, but I'm going to throw it out there. What would it look like if just overnight, or maybe even if the state legislature just decided 
cities cannot do uh, revenue rebates. Like they can't, they can't give money back to development. Like what would we do then to recruit and compete for developments? You would significantly, uh, that's a really good question. Like ignore, ignore the local control issues. I'm just asking if that was not an option, what would we do? I think uh, many cities would get much better in their actual development processes, like permitting, plan review. I, I think some cities would, would get more aggressive in reducing their overall demands for um, you know, buffering and landscaping. I think it would change the development environment a little bit because that, that would be the you can't take away the competition. There's still going to be competition. Do you think that cities would focus more on the actual like community building and place building and making making their environment more attractive as a, just a place to be? Like, sure, it's one thing to make it easier to build something, but I'm just talking about like I, I hate to say this, but like amenities, right? And you know, just like things that would make the city more attractive as a place to locate. I mean, you, you would, I understand that you would hate to say that, but you <laughs> would, you would admit that like landscape beautification of a boulevard, specifically like a retail boulevard does actually help enhance development. Would you say just like anecdotally that those two things will correlate? Oh yeah. Like I, I, I say that I hate to say that, but that's mostly just sort of a, an exaggeration. Um, I, I think it's, it's obvious that if you, as a city, take the effort to make things look nice, then you're going to create a virtuous cycle of re- reinvestment. Because people... I mean, you have to show that the, that the community as, a, as, a, as an entity is willing to put money back into itself, right? And to, to make it look nicer and to clean it up and to, to make it just more, like give, to give it some curb appeal, Right. If you let your house go to crap, the market for your house when you try to sell it is going to be a lot lower than if you have taken the time to keep your lawn up, to make it, you know, keep the flower beds nice and blooming and make it look beautiful from the street. I mean, that's like, that's your first impression, right? Someone's looking on Zillow or realtor.com and they see a picture of the front of the house and it looks like you haven't taken care of it. That's going to send a signal that, that maybe that's not a, something that they're interested in. This, I mean, I think the same applies for cities. If you haven't taken the time to keep your right of ways, rights of way, you know, mowed and cleaned and trimmed, um, if if your sidewalks are all cracked and disheveled, I mean, it it shows a certain willingness or lack of willingness to just maintain what you have. Why am I going to expect that you're going to spend new money now? With, now that my business comes into town, why is that going to change your mo? Yeah, no, I, I don't. I mean, it's hard because I've had an entire career that's been focused on the actual financial incentive side. I, I will say, though, that I, I believe a city's brand, both externally to a population or to residents and a city's brand more internally to the development community, make a substantial difference on what and, and what quality of development that you're able to, to bring in. To, uh, to your city and a city maintaining, you know, we always joked around in city government that you don't, you got to be careful with parks because you got a bunch of maintaining that's happening there. You got to be careful with boulevards and 
you know, all the grass you have to cut and things like that. But the reality is, is that cities that have well-maintained boulevards and way well-maintained retail corridors, those retail corridors, you know, typically last longer and they're sustainable and they encourage redevelopment within those corridors. When a city allows for concrete, you know, basically concrete jungles and, you know, they don't have any type of beautification requirements, uh, either in the city right of ways or on the private property side for those retailers, things can get real ugly real fast. And it, it, it becomes a, a very quick drop off in a community where uh, if one business is ugly, the, the next business, you know, the, the old broken glass theory that it, it starts to run down really fast. So I, I think incrementally we've got to be investing in that. I think we've got to invest in that from a city's perspective with those businesses to maintain um, the look and feel of those corridors. But ultimately at the end of the day, you just have to compete in different ways. And those different ways are, are really left to brand visibility and appeal of as a city when it comes to the regulatory environment, which plays a huge role today. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many deals are won and lost between cities based on meetings with just a single staff member of a city that went poorly. Um, you know, I, I, and honestly, I think a lot of city managers are not aware that they may have a staff member or two that can be cancerous in the development process. Uh, we, I mean, you and I have seen that a lot, Chad, mm -hmm. where we, where we talk to a developer and, you know, they, oh, we're trying to make a deal in a city. This is what we're trying to bring in. City doesn't really know what we're trying to bring in, but we're dealing with this one staff member who wants, you know, um, who wants me to put in a, a million dollar fire block wall and, and fire door that's not in the code. It wouldn't be a requirement, but ultimately I'm not going to go sue a city over this. And so I just pulled out. We see that type of stuff all the time. And, and the reality is, is if it got to the C-suite and that conversation was had, I think somebody would ask the question, like, where's the logic? What, why, why are we having that conversation? Um, and, and a lot of times in larger organizations, it just doesn't get to that level. You don't ever get to the person that's, that's logically thinking about it because everybody's in their little segments and sections and a planner is only thinking about what their job is, which is to maintain the regulatory environment. They're not thinking about the impact of that business long term. So they are, they are black and white, right angled. Nothing is allowed to change. And there's no negotiation, which is why I like cities that have set up a, um, set up a process where the development community, especially the small mom and pop businesses that are trying to start, um, they, they have set up a process where there's actually a city employee that works on behalf of the, of, of the person submitting for permit. Um, and their job is to take it through the city process and be the advocate for the, the permittee. Right. So, um, yeah, it, it, I, I think there are different things, but I, I think it would substantially change how we operate as communities. I mean, I think it's interesting as a thought experiment, obviously, you know, we live in the world that exists, not, not one that we might wish. And so whatever my personal, uh, struggles with the incentive culture, um, I mean, you have to play the game to some extent, and and there's no way that we're just going to all decide that uh, we're just not going to do that anymore. And we certainly don't want the legislature to say that you can't do it anymore. Um, it, it should really be up to the local community as, as far as how they uh, 
how they want to recruit and and build their community. Yeah, I think it's interesting to think about what would we do differently if that wasn't an option. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it would be very different. Uh, I, I think you would. I guess the question I would have for you is: Do you think the market would be more natural? Well, I think you'd have uh, you'd have better price signaling because you're actually the, the developer is actually bearing more of the true costs. It's not there's not the subsidy that is potentially distorting those decision making the, those decisions or that resource allocation. And it would take away the incentive of a developer to to basically fill and dump, right? So especially for and, the and, redevelopment cycle. That's correct. I mean, it would I mean, it would significantly enhance well, the redevelopment. Let's redevelop let's cycle. talk about let's talk about a larger city in the DFW metroplex that has just spent a ton of money to move uh, a sporting venue across the street. <laughs> right? I mean, it, was that necessary? No, probably not. Is it going to be beautiful? Absolutely. I'm really excited about it, but. I mean, I'm really excited about, about it because I don't have to sweat in my seat anymore. But it's still a lot of money to redevelop something that's 25 years old and probably could have gone for another 25 years or more. Um, but yeah, it's that, that redevelopment cycle, especially when you have smaller uh, entities that are, you know, if their incentive has run out and they want to kind of go back to the well and they're just going to move down the street. Maybe maybe the community has changed, and uh, you know there's a a better neighborhood, you know, five blocks down the road. Um, that's the situation where it just doesn't make any sense for us to be acting in the way that we're we are. So my my question for you about about that is: Do you bring up this this sporting venue or baseball field? Uh, do you bring this up because you're one of these fans that is upset that you're leaving the old venue? No, I'm actually super excited because it is, uh, it's impossible to go see games during the summer. And, oh, um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I went with my father-in-law last, last summer on a Sunday afternoon, two o'clock game. I want to say like August and it was, we were in the shade, but you still couldn't sit down on the seats because they were like 150 degrees. Oh, it, it's just unbearable. So I, I'm excited about having some air conditioning <laughs> in, in the, the hot summer months. Uh, I think it'll be good for our pitching rotation. Um, I mean, this particular team has always or has frequently started off strong, and then just that summer heat wears down on the pitching staff in particular. Um, so I, I'm looking forward to that. I don't. I mean, I don't have a problem with the decision. I understand it. I wish that they probably would have put a roof on it 25 years ago. But um, you know, ultimately, that's for the community to decide what they want to do. And, uh, and we, I'm and not going to gonna clear, begrudge them for making that decision, but, uh, just from a theoretical standpoint, that's, I mean, that's basically what happened. It's an incentivizing a a business to relocate literally across the street. Um, when what they had could have lasted, uh, for, for much longer. So just to wrap all this up based on, you know, wrap everything that we've talked about on the unnatural use of venture capital or the unnatural use of uh, incentives in recruiting businesses. I just want to make one final important point. This new stadium is not going to allow this team to win the boot. I just want to point that out. They will still get beat this year for the boot. 
by the greatest if, baseball team in the state of Texas, the Houston Astros. Well, if we have a baseball season, and I, I do know for a fact that all trash cans have been banned in the new stadium. Yeah, so. they, they don't allow them at all. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> they, uh, they did keep the camera in center field, though. Um, and that, that's a whole other podcast topic. I can't believe we hadn't even talked that through on the cast yet. So uh, we'll, we'll have to jump on that next time. But uh, guys, I want to thank you all for tuning in uh, to us today and uh, taking the time to listen to us about VC. I hope you learned some stuff about VC and uh, what what that does and also how we kind of intertwine that into uh, the development cycle that we have here as local governments as well. But we hope you join us next time. Chad, thanks a lot. Hey, uh, yeah. Before we leave, um, later today, we're recording uh, uh, an episode of the Go Cultivate podcast with the folks at Verdunity. So uh, I don't know when this will be released or when that will be released, um, but go check that out. Uh, and then next time, Patrick, be thinking about this because I have a really interesting question for you with regard to self-governance and shopping cart corrals. So stay tuned for that one because that's going to be a fun stay conversation. Stay tuned for that one.